Broadcasting from Manhattan Beach and the World Wide Web, you're listening to CHSRHealthyLife.net. As a service to our listeners, this program is for general information and entertainment purposes only. CHSRHealthyLife.net does not recommend, endorse, or object to the views, products, or topics expressed or discussed by show hosts or their guests. We suggest you always consult with your own personal, medical, financial, or legal advisor. Some of us, it's, it's not so easy. 
especially when we have so much in our plate or we're dealing with illness or addiction, recovery, not just with yourself, with others. There's so much happening. But this shift in perspective, we have found so many of us that it really does help us foster that attitude. It really does lend to healing and, and living a, a richer, fuller life. So here's how I like to start. Noticing who's helped, it make, who's helped um, make my life possible. Who are the folks that help me do what I do every day where I start? So you can ask yourself the question, who helps you do what you're doing right now? What's in your belly? What clothes are you wearing? You don't have to climb over yourself either. Are you grateful for all the work that you've put in? I know our guest today has been toiling at pulling all of this philosophical beauty together for us. You know, what it takes to write a book, the, the people, the crew, the team. Just noticing what that's like for you. And as you go down your list of folks who make it possible for you to do what you do, I'm going to mention a few right here on Marion Live, our honorary sponsor, the One World Children's Fund. Dot org if you're online, uniting people to improve the lives of children affected by poverty. They envision a world where we act together as a global community to ensure all children have education, health care, and a safe home. And then on the national level, we've got the National Action Organization, committed to changing the way our culture values each other. Programming just like this is possible because of the National Action Organization. Check them out online. And at the local level, uh, if you like bookstores, and we do here in Northern California, we love the Open Pacific Bookstore. We've got the latest in meditation and revelation. They've been a sponsor of ours for the past decade. So grateful. Yeah, it kind of feels good. So wherever, you, wherever you're at with yourself, breathing, your portal of gratitude, just now starting to shift your attention towards the idea concept, the philosophical context of addiction and recovery. Yeah, I know that's why you're here. Peg O'Connor has written a beautiful book for us, an important book for us to understand life beyond addiction and recovery. Life on the Rock, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery is the title of Peg's new book. Um, addiction, I was, it's funny, I was looking up addiction and uh, addiction statistics this morning and I was blown away literally blown away. I'm not sure they're accurate, uh, but uh, on, on every site that I was on, they're just mind-boggling. We're going to talk with Peg a little bit about this. But addiction affects most of us. Whether we're addicted ourselves, we know someone. It's maybe one degree of separation. It affects us all here in the United States. It's a, a very important topic. But addiction and recovery at their core, Peg says, about the meaning of life is about the meaning of life. Ted looks at behaviors from a Western philosophical perspective, offering a powerful set of tools sharpened over a millennia. She's a recovering alcoholic herself who maintains that philosophy got and helps her stay sober. Listen in today for ways to live a rich, meaningful, and joyful life beyond addiction. And O'Connor's going to take us back to ancient Greek roots of philosophy as care. So we're so looking forward to that. Let me tell you a little bit about Peg. She's an author and professor of philosophy and gender, women, and sexuality studies at Gustavus Adolphus College in Minnesota. She writes the popular Psychology Today blog, Philosophy Third, Not Chicken, um, and is featured uh, as a columnist for the Pro Talks and part of the Rehab.com online community 
of addiction treatment specialist. Her writing is appeared in the New York Times and the Huffington Post. And she's joining us today on Marion Live. Hey, Peg, I'm so glad you're here. Thanks for having me here, Marianne. This is going to be great. It already is great. It's great. Yeah, we get to be together. We get to talk. To be able to contemplate addiction is a gift in, in and of itself, wouldn't you say? Oh, I certainly would. And I think a lot of people are contemplating it. And a lot of people are thinking they're totally alone in it. And they don't know that there are other people who are struggling in the ways that they are and that there are all kinds of great resources out there, but sometimes it's just a matter of knowing where to look and even knowing what questions to ask. Well, hopefully this hour we'll get to some of that. I'd love to start um, by talking a little bit about some of the statistics, not that you have to rattle any of them off, but let's talk about what kind of a culture we're living in when it comes to addiction. Mm -hmm. So we know that Nearly 25 million people in the United States are addicted to something. Alcohol is still the number one drug, followed by marijuana and nicotine or nicotine and marijuana, either one of those. And we know from newspaper reports every day that the number of people addicted to prescription opioid drugs, a.k.a. prescription painkillers, is rapidly escalating, as is subsequent addictions to heroin. And we know that many people who start using heroin for the first time are making a transition from prescription drugs. And here's a number that probably will knock you off your seat. But in 2012, physicians wrote 259 million prescriptions for painkillers. 259 million. Wow. No surprise. Well, yeah, and, and we're, we're going to do another show on that. <laughs> mm-hmm. Big Pharma. You know, I, I was looking at some stats this morning, Peg, about uh, all of the kids that are actually, um, I think, uh, addicted. I can't remember the exact statistic, but apparently uh, the largest number of those addicted are kids on those farms. Well, you know, it's just amazing. I, I think there's, uh, we ought to be really concerned with how highly medicated our children are becoming. And we are, I think, well served to ask if we are medicalizing, not just medicalizing, but pathologizing childhood. And I can't for the life of me understand how one can make a diagnosis that a toddler is ADHD, and yet we've got children as young as two on ADHD medications, which is, you know, not how they're meant to be prescribed. So the off-label usage of some of these really powerful, uh, you know, ADHD drugs or amphetamine um, and the use of antipsychotic drugs in children, I just, for the life of me, I cannot understand. And that's not to deny that there aren't some children who are struggling and parents and families who are struggling, but the, the swiftness of medical interventions via pharmaceuticals that are powerful, I'm not sure is well advised at all. And I'm not a medical doctor. I'm not. However, I I do want for us to be far more cautious and aware. I think parents need to be more aware because I think we do live in a culture that looks for easier or faster cures. And I think the pharmaceutical industry has done a great job of marketing directly towards consumers and so I think there's no dangerous line in advertising than talk to your doctor or pharmacist. Let's talk about the line that one crosses, having brought up that particular perspective with regard to addiction, whether you come to it because you have a, some psychopathology or a perceived psychopathology. Um, however you get to the addiction, 
Uh, how do we know we've crossed the line, Peg? I mean, for kids, obviously, this is a very different story because kids are going to have to uh, rely on other people to help them determine this. But the average adult, let's say, how, how do we know we've crossed the line into addiction from dependence? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a great question, and and I I don't think that DSM-5 necessarily helps us with that, so the Diagnostic Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, in part because everything has moved on to a spectrum now. So now we talk about substance use disorders, and we name the particular substances. So there are 11 criteria, and if you meet two to three, it's a mild substance use disorder, uh, four to five, moderate, and six-plus severe. So you can look at those diagnostic criteria, and they have to do with risky use or increased use. It has to do with consequences of using. It has to do with physiological matters, and and maybe you can make a judgment there. Um, One of the things that I found, and this was certainly true of me when I was young, so I was one of those kids who started very young drinking at 14, and just by the time I was 16, I was a full-blown raging alcoholic, a blackout drinker, just complete blackout and I remember being in college where my addiction was you know running rampant and I would do every quiz that I ever saw about you may have a problem with alcohol if you know there'd be 10 questions and usually I liked getting a perfect score um, but I'd lie so I'd only get 9 out of 10 or something like that I think one of the things that we need to do is make this information more widely available particularly starting in um, elementary school, or do we call it middle school? Whatever is, you know, fourth and fifth grade, in junior high school, in high schools, and in colleges, because I think a lot of us who start young and using start to have a little voice going off inside of our head saying, you know, you're, you're using more than everyone else, or something's not right here. But I think it's important to have resources where people can do something of a gut check on themselves. And then the other piece of it is, I think friends oftentimes recognize our behaviors far more readily than we recognize them in our in ourselves so the importance of having friends and listening to friends to say to you i mean my friends would say to me my god peg what are you doing or you know losing circles of friends because your friends are are worried about you because they don't know if you're going to black out or you're going to go wandering off somewhere so friends are important so your book is about uh, is addressing people who recognize they have a problem with addiction Oh, it could be in past tense, people who have recognized at some point, know other people who are addicted, you know, because it would be so easy. I'd love to get into the conversation about all the nuances of coming to the place, right, mm-hmm. at what point. I think you've drawn a line for us, though. When a person recognizes themselves, they have a problem, and they are poised, if not ready, to do something about it. Right? Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that is a point, and you'll, you'll hear a lot of people talk about it that way. And the other way they talk about it, uh, some people in AA, is if you're trying to control your drinking or thinking about how much you are drinking, that's a signal too. Yeah. Right. And so there are probably a lot of people who waffle on this point, and maybe for years, given one of the main uh, symptoms is denial, right, mm-hmm. uh, forms, all forms of repression, mostly because most of us that have been addicted or are addicted are using the substance to help navigate something that's so painful, whatever that is. It could be a character disorder to something as benign as a loss, a, a current loss in one's life. Not benign, but comparatively. Uh, normal. Yeah, normal everyday life, just coping, right, mm-hmm. as a comforting strategy. I was talking to some millennials uh, over the last month or so 
doing a private little survey in my head about the way that they congregate around alcohol, which, you know, has turned into a big problem for them as a generation as well, given, and you talk about this in their book, a culture that is being, was also insular, and so the alcohol becomes a bridge. So there's all the ways that we come to this personal place in life where we have to make a decision if we are addicted or not for ourselves, okay? So, Peg, you have a lot of resources available for folks who maybe we can point them in the direction if they don't know or, you know, all of that. But this book in particular is addressing folks who are pretty clear they've got a problem. They're, they're looking for some kind of recovery, and you are introducing the concept of philosophy to expand our view on what that means. Tell us a little bit about how you arrived here. Yeah. How did I arrive there? I mean, philosophy and addiction don't go together like peanut butter and jelly or Gumby and Pokey. You know, it's, it's a weird combination. But it's, it's me. It's my combination. So, you know, my training is in philosophy. I was a philosophy undergraduate in college. I, I fell in love with it. And one of the things that I fell in love with, a couple of things, one of them was understanding philosophy as an activity, that it is social. It is fundamentally social. So the first philosophers, let's take Socrates, who in 399 BCE, so we're talking 2,400 years ago, was put to death because he was asking questions meant to get people to interrogate themselves about their character and about what they knew and how they were being citizens of their city-state of Athens. And he was charged with corrupting the youth of Athens because he was teaching them how to think and how to see their well-being as being fundamentally connected to the well-being, the flourishing of the city-state. And Aristotle similarly, too, ties together the individual happiness or flourishing of a person to broader social groups. And I like that about philosophy. I also liked about philosophy, drawing from Aristotle, the way that Aristotle talked about friendship as the most important moral relationship one person can have with another, that your friends help you to become the person that you are, and they can do that to good effect, help you to become very good people of strong moral character, or the wrong friends can bring you down. And that always made a lot of sense to me, because a lot of us who are addicts, we use with other people. And we like to, this is back to your denial point, we like to compare, and we never like to be the worst one in the group. So, you know, it makes sense to surround ourselves with people who are using more so than we are, so we can point at them. I can point at you and say, well, you know, I'm not like Mary Ann at least. At least I haven't done this. And then at some point you realize you were the comparison point for someone else. And, you know, that moment of recognition can be crucial too. And then you and I were talking before we started the interview here, and you mentioned Kierkegaard. So Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, lived in the mid-1800s, a very interesting, fascinating guy. And I was studying him as an undergrad in Something I read actually serves as the epigraph for the book. And this made sense of my experience, what was happening to me as I was a raging alcoholic as an undergraduate. So Kierkegaard writes, The greatest hazard of all, losing the self, can occur very quietly in the world as if it were nothing at all. No other loss can occur quite so quietly. Any loss, an arm, a leg, $5, a wife, is sure to be noticed. And I realized I had lost myself in my addiction. I lost my sense of who I was. I lost my sense of having dreams or goals. I lost my sense of having core commitments. 
and principles that I wouldn't want to violate. I just I felt myself disintegrating. And that, to me, was one of those kind of crucial moments to say, I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know if I really am anything anymore. And I think one of the things that happens then, and this is the most dangerous consequence of addiction, is you become truly indifferent to your own well-being. That's, to me, one of the greatest harms of addiction. You don't care about yourself at all. And that's where I was landing. That's beautiful. That's a beautiful insight to think about um, the soul loss, loss itself, mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of pulling the microscope out. And with addiction, uh, we are focused somewhere else. Your shift in perspective sort of helps not only raise the horizon for all of us, but it gives us uh, a new vector a new place to look. When we get back, we're going to talk a little bit with Peg O'Connor a little bit more about shifting this perspective as a way to move beyond addiction and recovery in the traditional sense, at least the way we know it. When we get back right here on Mary and Lott, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back right after these messages. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've We've ordered ordered No More More Love Life Life Drama Drama for us. Hi, everybody. I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Raynaud. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. Honey, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50% end in divorce? Yet, we spend an average of one-third of our lives trying to find a great relationship or get help with the ones we already have. Yep, that's exactly why we created the first ever of its kind, The Great Relationships Begin Within, Self-Inquiry Divination Deck, because we know what it takes to attract and create a healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship. And it's really simple. Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Marianne Light and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com. Okay, so you have a couple of days off, and you're planning to get away from stress. You may be planning to go across the world or even taking a staycation around town. Well, Hotels.com can get you a room in over 158,000 hotels, 60 countries, for 50% off. That's reducing stress already. Plus, collect 10 nights, and you'll get one night free. And there's no cancellation charges, no change fees. For the best deals, even last-minute deals, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on Hotels.com. Music, information, and friends. HealthyLife.net. The 
everybody. Welcome back to Marianne Live. I'm Marianne Camarado. Peg O'Connor's in the house. Life on the Rocks, finding meaning in addiction and recovery. You know, during the break, Peg and I were just having a little light chit chat about Stephen uh, Moore, Kierkegaard, William James Sr. You know, the kind of stuff that you talk about while you're standing over the water cooler. <laughs> well, thank you, Peg, because really, I said before the break, pulling the microscope out is what we need to do. I think we can get so fixated on a perspective or an identity like addiction that we, we hang on to it for dear life, and we have to pull the microscope out to see what else is possible if we want to heal and recover, yeah? Yeah, I, I think that's right. And philosophy has always been about examining yourself, examining your soul, or examining your person. And I think a lot of us don't know how to do that very well or very productively. And I think when we actually start to pay attention, so here comes Aristotle, sort of who I am, is a matter of my moral character, and my moral character is very much a consequence of what I do and with whom I do it. And so I have great joy in talking to my students. So I, I teach traditional 18 to 22-year-old students in a residential liberal arts context to talk to them about moral virtues. And I say, you know, give me a list of five moral virtues, and they look at me as if I don't have just two heads but three heads. And then we start <laughs> playing with that language. And if I say to them, I want you to start identifying traits that you would want to be known for, that you take to be so essential to who you are. That's when we really start taking off. And for me and my students, self-examination is coming to know who you are because you know what you stand for and you know the kinds of choices, the kinds of activities where you want to place your energy because it isn't just placing your energy, it's placing yourself. And that's and that is just so vital. And so to hear, you know, a twenty twenty year old guy saying he wants to be known as being trustworthy and loyal and hardworking and generous and I think, Oh my gosh, this is self examination. We need more of this. So what if we looked at um addiction in in the sort of the, the context of shadow? So hmm. if, you, if you want to see yourself as trustworthy, a good person, and et cetera, et cetera, when we are participating in our addiction, it sort of eclipses those parts of ourselves. Some yes. of us think we lose touch with them or we never develop them. They call it arrested development. Talk about addiction in this model. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that fits really well. I mean, everything I've always read says that, you know, people's development stops when they really start using alcohol or drugs or engaging in certain behaviors um, to those abusive, addictive points. So it, it's no surprise that when people sober up, in some ways they're so far behind. So if you start drinking when you're 14, you don't sober up until you're 37, you've got something of a gap there. And I think that whole question about commitments is really interesting because one of the ways I understand addiction is it is very much a lived set of commitments where your use of a drug or consuming drugs or engaging in behaviors, that becomes the axis around which many other of your life's activities will turn. And those other activities will start to fall off because it turns out you might not be able to be very good at your career and successful or be a good parent when, you know, you are busy trying to figure out where you're going to get your next prescription of Vicodin or something like that. 
And so what happens for me that moment when there is a break between how I see myself, how I, I want to take myself to be in the world, and I'm confronted with harsh realities that I'm not acting in those ways anymore, and more concerning, I'm not that person anymore, right? That kind of, I talk about it as, as a kind of existential concussion. Mm-hmm. I love that. Right? I don't recognize myself in my own life anymore or all the things that had grounded me, that had oriented me, that I so strongly identify with, the frameworks that I had for making sense of my life and myself and my meaning and value, they break down or they go away or they get smashed. And suddenly I can't make sense of myself anymore. And the philosopher Nietzsche, another wonderful philosopher, yay, writing in the late 1800s, and he suffered from significant mental illness and spent his last 10 years um, in an asylum. One of the things that Nietzsche says that is so right is that suffering is just part of the human conditions. We all suffer. And when we can't make sense of our suffering, that's when it's life-destroying and intolerable. And I think a lot of addicts reach that point where they can't make sense. I don't even know why I'm drinking anymore. I don't even know why I keep doing this. Or, you know, I don't care anymore. And Nietzsche says you've got to transform that suffering into something meaningful so that it doesn't destroy you. That doesn't mean that it's all happiness or that it's all good. But when it's meaningless suffering, when there's no point to it, we can't locate it in our life in any kind of way. That is soul-destroying. So that's so useful, right, because that, that the paradox, holding the tension of the opposite, you might mm-hmm. talk about it in those terms, the transcendent function, or, or James Hillman might even say that we're polytheistic. We have all these parts of ourselves, and the addict is one sort of an archetype a lot of us mm-hmm. know. But when we are overly identified with this, like you said, you know, you've lived your life, it's been a coping strategy, part of who you are, and that breaks down and that, that, that chaos, that suffering, I, I have it as if you just don't know who you are anymore. And that you're inviting us to, to bring our focus and awareness back to the clarity of that uh, inquiry. Who am I mm-hmm. now? Is that, is that, is that accurate? Or? That, that's accurate. And now, of course, we've got to confuse the picture because... I was just, uh, t- I'm teaching a seminar on philosophy and addiction. It's great. I have great students. And we were reading a paper by Owen Flanagan, who's a wonderful philosopher at Duke. And Owen has this great paper about what alcoholic memoirs can teach us. And one of the things that Owen Flanagan is arguing about is that addiction can be something of a lifestyle. And that's something maybe that makes us feel really uncomfortable. What? Someone would choose to live that lifestyle? And lifestyle language is, is always interesting because homosexuality was taken to be a life cycle, a lifestyle, and maybe it is in some ways. But uh, the set of memoirs that Owen was looking at, a lot of them were written by men. And when you think about there is very much of a male alcoholic lifestyle that gets glamorized or romanticized, particularly when it has to do with artists whether they be writers or they be painters. And so I think what happens is, you know, so for example, a lot of young men who want to be great writers, they think, well, I'm going to look at the list and all of these great writers drank, and there's some maybe little bit of of benefit in the sense of um, some drugs can cause you to, what, 
loosen the the ropes of of you know creativity i mean take off some of some of your your blinders and you can see things differently but it's got diminishing returns but it also seems to me that some people buy into that lifestyle and they think oh to be a real writer i got to be a serious hard drinker i mean christopher hitchens would be a primary example yeah interesting memoir he wrote right Exactly right, or William S. Burroughs. Exactly. Mm -hmm. We come back after the break more with Peg O'Connor. We're going to talk about how do we get some traction, right, within the paradox. Who are we? What parts of ourselves want our attention now? How how do we hold that tension? Well, Peg's going to help us. He's written a book about it, by the way. Get a copy, Life on the Rock, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery, right here on Marian Life. Don't touch that dial. We'll be right back. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've ordered No More Love Life Drama for Us. Shh, over here. Here's a secret for a virus-free computer. ESET, they've been a pioneer in the antivirus industry for over 25 years. 25 years of innovative, top-rated antivirus protection. ESET's award-winning security solutions provide a safe online experience for over 100 million home and business computer owners. They are so affordable, fast, and simple to use. So be gone, you blue screen of death. ESET's on my computer. If it's not on yours, visit HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click on ESET now. Did you know that in seven minutes you might save $522 on car insurance? Well, this makes sense. Since 21st Century Insurance's company's website has been rated number one in responsiveness by Keynote. Serving customers since 1958, 21st Century Insurance has a 24-7 online policy and claim service. You can get a quote fast and easy, so get your quote by visiting HealthyLife.net's advertiser page and click right on the 21st Century Insurance banner. More exhilarating talk. HealthyLife.net. But in the philosophy, there is no point. Oh, no. Right, kill me, kill me. Welcome back. You're from Marianne Live. Peg O'Connor and I, we're talking philosophy. Yeah, as it, what it has to do with finding meaning in addiction and recovery. The title of Peg O'Connor's new book, Life on the Rock. This is a beautiful book, folks. If you are, if you find yourself uh, as a recovering addict, someone who is approaching that conversation or knows anybody else dealing with it, uh, as a, a new possibility, uh, a larger vista for how to translate your life, who you are in the midst of that mythology, this is an amazing book because the addiction story can get pretty narrow and a, a lot of... Um, yeah, a lot of uh, cliches and very uh, things that are not useful to support recovery, let's put it that way, floating around. Peg, you've created a, a great path for us, and you're showing a lot of folks the way, uh, how to use philosophy uh, 
um, to help us expand that, that our potential. So before the break, you were, you were talking a little bit about how to orient ourselves in, in terms of taking a philosophical approach to dealing with this paradox, right? When you let go of addiction in some way or you, or you identify addiction, you sort of ask the existential question, well, who am I now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and a lot of us have a big investment in, in that lifestyle, as you said. It can be very male, et cetera. But wherever you find yourself at some point, we need some traction here. Philosophy is a big conversation. How do we get some traction on where we're going towards? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think your book is doing that for us. But where do we want to go next? So one of the things that, I don't know, do I argue in this book? I certainly talk a whole heck of a lot about um, is self-deception. I think that self-deception is a hallmark of addiction. And I think there are some forms of self-deception that are pretty well-known, uh, denial and rationalization and minimization. I mean, I think we do those in all kinds of ways. You know, we can step on the scale and blur our eyes and say, oh, yeah, really, no, I'm not up two pounds or, you know, oh, all that sort of thing. I wanted to pay more attention to less obvious forms of self-denial or self-deception that I think oftentimes certainly were characteristic of me and that I still struggle with in recovery. Because here's, here's the truth of the matter, that even if I'm in recovery and even if life is good and I'm flourishing and all those kinds of things, that, well, I'm still me and I still have certain inclinations or propensities to think in certain ways because thinking is habitual. I mean, it's something we learn by habit. So one of the great questions, and this is the, I think will indirectly tack into your question about how to gain traction. One of the forms of self-deception I talk about is procrastination, and that a lot of people will say, yeah, I know I need to quit drinking, and I'll quit drinking when, and then we'll list a whole, you know, big, 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 full sheet of 11 by, what's the bigger legal size paper, not 8.5 by 11. But whatever, really big, of, of reasons why. Well, I need to get more information. I want to shop around for the right treatment. I need to make sure my family's taken care of. And procrastination, Kierkegaard, back to our favorite, talks about is something of a breakdown between my understanding, my understanding what I need to do, and my will to actually take that action. And procrastination can look like you're taking a lot of action. I'm gathering information about treatment centers. I'm gathering information. I'm, I'm, I'm exploring. It's kind of like when people are writing their doctoral dissertations and they'll say, well, I just have to read one more book. and I have to read one more. So they never get to writing. And um, I certainly was guilty of procrastination when I was when I was drinking so much. I always thought, well, I'll do it after finals are over. Oh, I'll do it when. And... Um, I was reading Kierkegaard, and Kierkegaard has this wonderful description of procrastination. Kierkegaard said, procrastination is like sewing without tying a knot on the end of the thread. You can make all the motions, you can pull that needle through, but you've actually accomplished nothing. So the senior pants is still split. And so procrastination is a form of self-deception. So... You know, how do you overcome these forms of self-deception? Because they're self-deception. What that says is you can't look to yourself to identify your self-deception. That comes back to who else can you look towards to help you say, you know, Peg, you're getting really busy. It, it, you're kind of like Fred Flintstone trying to get the acceleration on the car. The feet are moving, but nothing is happening. And it's important, again, to come back to listening to others. And what's really hard is that when we're active in our addictions, usually we drink or use our way from 
away from our friends and families, that we do find ourselves more alone. And one of the great insights from William James is I may well feel incredibly isolated and alone when I'm at the center of the party, you know, because you can be totally alone in a large group of people, even who you think are your friends. And it it, it seems to me that what other kinds of resources can we have for people so long as you don't use those resources to continue to procrastinate, to try to make better decisions for them. And so I think education is crucial. Of course I'm going to say that. I'm, I'm a teacher. But I think a lot of people think it's either AA or inpatient 12-step, and that's the only option available. Well, no. There's outpatient treatment. There are various kinds of you know, therapeutic engagements. There's also uh, medication-assisted or drug replacement therapies that... The more information we have out there in this age of the Internet, there's so many ways to disseminate knowledge, all the better. And we need to do a lot more with training physicians to be more attentive to possible addiction issues in particular populations, in kids and in senior citizens. We're starting to see an uptake in addiction rates in our senior citizens. And that's not surprising, but we need to deal with it because with the baby boomers now in their senior years, we're going to put a huge stress on the on the health systems. So going back to something you said about the, the uh, 12-step program, right? Mm-hmm. Oftentimes when people say they are recovering, um, you think about the 12-step program, and during one of the breaks you had said that the actual 12 steps came out of uh, William James Sr. or were inspired by some of William James Sr.'s work or musings or philosophy himself. Talk a little bit about this. I love this. So this is this is genealogy. So Bill W., the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous, in 1934, checks himself into the Charlestown Hospital in New York. He's trying to dry out one more time. He throws up his hands in despair and says, you know, take this away from me. I'll do anything, anything. And he said he felt a, a breeze that he knew not to be wind, but the spirit go past him, and in that moment, his desire to drink was lifted. A little bit later, he thinks, oh, my God, I've, I've lost my mind here. I've, got, I've gone crazy here. And he had a very good friend who had read William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. So William James was an American philosopher, physician, and psychologist. He's actually responsible for the founding of academic psychology here in the U.S., and William James uh, is the brother to Henry James, the novelist. And their father, Henry James Sr., was a very wealthy man who studied a lot of different things in different places, moved the family back and forth between the U.S. and the continent uh, multiple times, in part because Henry James Sr. got completely um, enamored with um, Emmanuel Swedenborg. Yes, yes. Mary, Marianne is smiling about that. <laughs> she's happy. he is, I'm still in love with him. Yes, I'm glad she's in love with him. And um, he was a really interesting character because he was very much of a mysticist. And when William James writes the variety of religious experience, he's really interested in people for whom a religious fervor, spiritual belief. He means spiritual, not institutionalized religions, but spiritual, so intensely personal spiritual life. The people for whom that burns in them so brightly that he's fascinated by conversion stories. So, you know, in the Bible, Saul becomes Paul when he gets 
And conversion is incredibly important because Bill W. comes to see that he had a conversion of a certain sort away from the desire to drink. When we get back after the break, more with Peg O'Connor. What a great story. And, and maybe that even uh, leads into our next question. What's the difference between philosophy and spirituality? Oh, yeah. We'll get back right We're now. going there. Back in just a minute. I don't want to date anymore. What? Did you break up again? You said he's perfect. Well, I don't blame you. My last date lasted two minutes at a speed dating event. Are you still looking for the one? There are millions of singles looking for soulmates. Actually, drama-free love. Worry no more. Nine international relationship experts collaborated to bring you secrets to drama-free love. Proven solutions that singles use to help them find, catch, and keep the right relationship. Get your copy of Secrets to Drama-Free Love at Amazon.com now. We've We've ordered ordered No More More Love Life Life Drama Drama for Us. MarianneLive.com is where you can go to keep up to date with what and where relationship expert, author, and radio host Marianne Camerato is appearing next. Besides Marianne's three radio shows weekdays on HealthyLife.net, you can find out details about upcoming or ongoing seminars and workshops. How about information for ordering copies of books or DVDs? That's also available at MarianneLive.com. Find out about core certification, certificate of responsible relationships www.marianlife.com core certification learning tools to attract build and sustain great relationships also sign up for marianne's newsletter to be informed about upcoming events and possible workshops or speaking engagements in the northern california area www.marianlive.com what does HealthyLife.net and Amazon.com have in common? Well, they're both available on the Internet. They both give great value. But most important, most of our positive program hosts and guests are accomplished authors. And their books are available from, you got it, Amazon.com. Now it even gets better than that. Because when you're listening on air to a HealthyLife.net host or guest, you can go directly to Amazon.com and you can order your book while you're still listening to your favorite HealthyLife.net program. So when you hear an author you like, go to the homepage of HealthyLife.net and click on Amazon.com. HealthyLife.net. The Positive Radio Network. All right, everybody, welcome back to Marian Live. Yeah, we're talking about alcohol and cocaine during the break, and why not? Because addiction and recovery—that's just part of it. Peg O'Connor and I were talking about what, what, what are we really hungry for? What are we craving? Why do we reach for these addictive? substances and Peggy were saying there's a whole bunch of different reasons and it depends on what it is you're craving right talk a little bit about this as we turn our way back well I I think that's interesting so uh, people are different drugs make you feel different differently sorry I'm checking my grammar here different drugs have different effects in the brain such that they might really wire you up or they may cause you to totally mellow and chill out and that a lot of people start using particular drugs because they're looking for that particular effect. So, you know, alcohol, for example, the number one drug on any college campus, I know that a lot of students feel really socially awkward until they get a few belts in them, and what we're seeing is young women are binge drinking, approaching the rates of men, and young women binge drink hard alcohol because they can slam back four or five shots 
They don't have to worry about the beer belly bloat. They don't have to worry about using the skanky bathrooms at house parties that are disgusting. I mean, it's very well planned out. They use it to lighten up and be ready to have fun. Other people are smoking a lot of marijuana because they just want everything to kind of chill out and and go away. And other people are looking for amphetamines for stimulants because they want to feel like a circuit breaker has been just thrown on them because otherwise they feel so gray and dull and flat. So people are looking for really different things. And forever, right? As long as there have been substances, people have been indulging with some greater or lesser degrees of intention, which is kind of what we're Uh also talking about, what motivates you, pain, pleasure, whatever it is, at some point when we cross the addiction line and we're looking at recovery, right, when it's no longer really about a choice, I just want to get a little high, when all of a sudden your life is being torn apart and those around you, we're in a different conversation, which is what we're talking about today. Then you stand and face, as we have done this hour, what are my options here? What does recovery look like? Mm-hmm. How am I going to move beyond the story? You have said, we need to look at ourselves. We need other people around us to help us do that. And we need some choices. Uh, and philosophy is the one you've offered us, a bigger perspective. Now, mm-hmm. here we are coming to the top of the hour, and right before the break we were talking about spirituality versus um, uh, versus what? Religion? Yeah. Kind of, right? Like, what's the difference between uh, the two? Well, I think oftentimes when people use religion, they're talking about institutions. So Catholicism, I'm, I'm in the Midwest, Lutheranism, Judaism. And that that is something, oh, my God, we're back at Kierkegaard, all roads to Kierkegaard. Sorry, you know what? That's wrong. Uh, I said spirituality versus philosophy, not religion. That's a big Problem. Oh, okay. Let me back up. Okay. I'm Hit sorry them. to interrupt you, but yeah. No, no, rewind us. Yeah. yeah. Here we go again. Yeah. You know, I think the two blend into each other in in all kinds of ways. One of the things that's happened with philosophy is that we have gone into the academy, into the ivory tower. We've become an academic discipline with a set of very specialized problems and problems that many people find alienating or, you know, wondering, what the heck are you weirdos talking about? Which is unfortunate because I think, you know, the era, you know, the ancients, it's about a practice, it's about who you are and all of that. That's an important part of spirituality. And, and some might argue that we are fundamentally spiritual beings and problems follow when we don't attend to those spiritual dimensions of us. But we get so busy paying attention to our social media selves or our physical selves, our needs, our wants, our cravings, our limitations, that we lose sight, that we are also spiritual beings that need to have a kind of balance within ourselves. And that is what lands many of us in a state of abject despair. I love the language of Kierkegaard and William James, despair, melancholy, angst. I mean, all those terms have been pathologized now to be clinical depression, you know, blah, 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 blah. Whereas, no, they're very lived, real experiences that I want that language back. And, and even more, let's go beyond that. Let's allow ourselves to feel them. Yes, and not medicate them away. And I think that's also part of it. Back to Nietzsche. We all struggle. We all struggle, and struggles are hard. But to think that we can somehow inoculate ourselves against them or treat them whenever we struggle, which is not to deny that there are people who legitimately struggle and require pharmaceutical interventions. And the body never lies. It's going to hang on to whatever we think we're cheating ourselves. We're like cheating, you know, we're going to get away from these feelings. No, nope, they're going to wait. 
They'll, They'll be there yeah, because they're us. Yeah. They're part of us. Exactly. All right. Well, coming to the top of the hour, Peg O'Connor, what do you want to leave us with today? I want to leave with a plea. Have me back. I love this. <laughs> I love talking to you. Yeah. Yeah, you very end. Um, I think my, my plea is one of, of hopefulness. I think that of all the people who struggle with addiction, that we are all philosophical. We all ask these kinds of questions. And I want to say it is really productive to ask those questions and to seek answers and, and know that there is no one right way or one path only to get sober and to live a good life and to explore people, to encourage people to explore and to really at some point, though, make a passionate commitment to living well and taking themselves really seriously and loving themselves. I mean, that's what it means to love yourself is to take yourself seriously. Indeed. So we want more of you, Peg. You want to get your book. Uh, I've got a free copy, by the way, that I'm going to part with. And uh, if you want to send us an email, the first person to do so, we will send you uh, one of Peg's books, Life on the Rock, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery, right here on Marion Live. The rest of you can get a copy wherever fine books are sold. Peg, where do we get a hold of you if we want to know what you're up to and what's on deck next for you? A really good place to get a hold of me is my blog on psychologytoday.com, philosophy stirred, not shaken. And I, I post once or twice a month on there, so I just actually posted a piece about alcohol, blackout, drinking, and slut shaming. Wow. We love you. We immediate fans. Those of us who just heard that were like, they, they hung up. They're like looking for your blog right now. Peg O'Connor, thanks for joining us today. It's been such a delight and, and very illuminating uh, for all of, all of us today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. It's been, it's been a joy. Well, we hope you do come back, and maybe we'll have that uh, deeper conversation that we were talking about earlier. And we'll talk some more about cocaine and alcohol, right? (laughs) (laughs) Then they're done that, wrote the book. No, just kidding. (laughs) Exactly. All right, everybody else, you sit tight. We're going to come back for our wrap right here on Marion Live. Once again, Peg O'Connor, thanks for joining us today. The rest of you get a copy, Life on the Rock, finding meaning in addiction and recovery right here on Marion Live. Back in just a minute. Everybody. I'm relationship expert and radio talk show host, Marianne Camarado. And I'm David Reynolds. We want to talk to you for a minute about the changing world of dating and relationships and how self-inquiry can help. Honey, did you know that 44% of the U.S. population is single and over 50% end in divorce? Yet, we spend an average of one-third of our lives trying to find a great relationship or get help with the ones we already have. Yep, that's exactly why we created the first ever of its kind, the Great Relationships Begin Within, Self-Inquiry divination deck because we know what it takes to attract and create a healthy, fulfilling, sustainable relationship. And it's really simple. Sit quietly, close your eyes, turn your attention inward, and draw a card. You can go online right now and get a free reading on Marianne Lide and try out the cards. And for under $20, what better way to give yourself a gift of your own attention? We wish you every blessing. We'll see you next time. Check out MarianneLive.com. To be a good father is the most important job in a man's life, but it doesn't have to be hard. Play catch, go to a park or visit a zoo, help your child with their homework, sit down together for dinner, ask them how their day was. Things get busy, and sometimes we all fall short, but the smallest moments can have the biggest impact on a child's life. Take time to be a dad today.
Learn more at 1-877-4DAD-411 or visit fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Stuff, stuff, stuff. Where can I contain all of my stuff? Hmm, how about this? The Container Store, the original storage and organization store. And I found their link on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page. They have containers for everything, including the kitchen, the bathroom, trash and recycling, traveling, spring cleaning, and dorm rooms. Just about everything you can think of to contain your stuff. The Container Store, right on the HealthyLife.net advertiser page. HealthyLife.net, where positive overcomes negative. All right, everybody, thanks for tuning in. Boy, did we need that. There are so many of us that struggle with issues related to addiction, and now we've got some even better answers. Wow, who knew that philosophy could help us with recovery? You heard it here on Marian Live. Get a copy of Peg O'Connor's book, um, Life on the Rock, Finding Meaning in Addiction and Recovery. All right, so next week, if you're going to be joining us again, and we hope you are, Marla Washington is going to be in the house talking about Dating Without a Daddy, a guide for fatherless women looking for love, right here on Marianne Live. In the meantime, oh yeah, third part of our practice is go do something for somebody else. And don't let them know you did it. It's a great way to uh, participate in your ongoing inquiry and practice for staying awake. It doesn't even have to be anything major. Getting somebody a cup of coffee. The person behind you in the line at Starbucks or Peach and wherever you go, don't let them know you did it. Super. Thanks for joining us today. I wish you every blessing. Until next time, everybody, take good care.